Bible School Sunday. We try to do something a little bit different on Vacation Bible School. Uh, and it was great this week, by the way, to be here. Uh, I got drafted, or some would say suckered, into being a part of one of the illustrations. And uh, one of the teachers um, asked if I would be a part of this skit, and she kind of said so sheepishly, and I said, sure. So um, she, didn't, she didn't give me all of the details of what was involved, but uh, I learned very quickly of that she was trying to teach about substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. It's not a term that many of us use very often. Uh, if you've been in Christ for a period of time, undoubtedly you've heard, hopefully you've heard the terms. And what this skit was is uh, she brought the children into the room and she was trying to teach them uh, about who Jesus is. And so she had an illustration. She took a chair and put it in front of the class and asked for a volunteer. And one of the children, of course, volunteered. She brought this child up and she said, I have to ask you one question. And if you get this question wrong, you get a pie in the face. And of course, now the kid was really regretting that uh, they had volunteered for this. And the child looked up and said, well, what, what do I have to answer? And she pulled away a curtain. She goes, I need you to define this term for me. And she pulled away the curtain, revealing the term substitutionary atonement. Now, many of us as adults would have a hard time defining substitutionary atonement. But when you're seven, you can't even say substitutionary atonement. And so this child sat there kind of like, um, uh, and the teacher said, well, I'll give you 10 seconds to define or, you know, come up with a definition of what substitutionary atonement is. And the child just sat there like, I can't even say that word. I mean, it it was funny even hearing the pronunciations, whether it was substitutionary or atonement. Uh, But after the time came out, the the teacher said, well, I'm sorry, you couldn't define it. And uh, then they pulled a pie and they said, we're going to count down and this child's going to get a pie in the face. And 10, and the kids now, the other kids were real excited (laughs) that one of their friends is going to get a pie in the face. And they counted down 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2. And then I jumped up and I said, Stop the countdown. I will take her place. And so the little girl was very relieved. that I would step in and take her place. And as I sat down on the stool, the teacher asked me, are you sure you know what you're doing? I said, yes, I know what I'm doing. And then she said, okay. And they counted down, 10, 9, 8, 7. Now the kids are really into it. Down to 2, 1, and she got a little too excited. <laughs> she actually threw the pie so hard, it hit me in the face, flew off, and hit the wall behind me. <laughs> um, that was the first time. We ended up doing it a couple times. But... It was a great illustration for the kids to learn. Substitutionary atonement is when someone takes our place to receive our punishment. That's one of the things the children learned this week and what it means to have someone step into our place. See, the purpose of this past week was a way to reach out to the community and share who Jesus is. I mean, yes, we provide games, we provide fun, a great atmosphere, but what we want to do is we want to show people who Jesus is why he came to live, why he came to die, and how he did die in our place. But oftentimes we just stop there. Many of us have grown up in churches or been around environments where we just get a person to pray the prayer and that's it. But the Christian life is so much more than that, that there are so so many more benefits to the Christian life that God is showing that he is there for us, that we are now his child and that he will fight on our behalf. Today I've chosen a psalm that talks about the benefits of really truly knowing who God is. 
This is what happens when we know him, that he's not just our substitution, but he is there for us through the most difficult circumstances or situations in our lives. And I know that many of you right now in this room are going through a very difficult time. Some are feeling the loss of a spouse, whether it's through divorce, possibly death, maybe there's a separation. Some are dealing with unemployment and wondering why they can't have a job. Others are wondering where the money is going to come from, how they're going to pay their bills. Some are dealing with rebellious children who are doing all kinds of illegal things and that you, you're grieved in the depth of your heart, wondering when God has intervened and hopefully, hopefully that God will not kill your child. Because if a child continues on in disobedience, God will be long-suffering, but inevitably, he doesn't remove all consequences for actions. We're all dealing with something in our lives. And this psalm was written to encourage those who truly know God to call on him, to know that he is there when you need him, that he is there for us. So today, no matter what you're going through, no matter what difficulty you are facing, I, I'm going to ask that we all come with open hearts to see how God is there for us. What does that mean in our lives? How can we trust in him in a greater way? How can we call on him and find our peace and satisfaction and rest in him? But before we go any further, I'm going to ask God to, uh, by his spirit, to speak to us today during this message time. Let's pray. Lord, our God, sometimes we forget that you are God. We are so distracted, too busy, too self-absorbed, too addicted to our own fun, our own pleasures, our own entertainments, caught up in this ever-moving and changing life, preoccupied with ourselves. And Lord, you know our struggles, you know our sins. And yet, Lord, you have enabled us to call on you, and you have promised to be there for us when we need you. And so today I pray that no matter what, what a person here is going through, that they might see that you are there for them, that you are sufficient, and that you can be trusted. So Lord, Glorify your name. Speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Psalm 46. Now, before we get into this psalm and break it down, I want to give a little background about the book of Psalms. And I've, I've heard people do this. It's a book of Psalms, but when you refer to one psalm, you call it that psalm. So it's not Psalms 46. Psalm 46 Okay, that's just a little note here. Now, the book of Psalms is a collection of 150 poems or psalms. The Hebrew label, because it was written in Hebrew, uh, means praises. And the English title, there's sometimes little subtitles that are there found within your Bibles. Uh, but the term psalm, this English title, comes from the Greek word psalmos, which is a translation of the Hebrew word uh, mizmor and means song. And it's found, actually, in many of the psalm titles. Now, this collection of these 150 psalms is also called the Psalter. 
people refer to it, the whole group together as the Psalter. And in these books, written, over, uh, written by several different authors uh, over a long period of time, are communicating adoration, thanksgiving, and a needy cry for help. One of the fascinating things about the book of Psalms is that it's one of the few books that speaks for us. Not just speaks to us, but speaks for us. Meaning that this book, I mean this entire book of Psalms, captures the variety of emotions and experiences that we will have in life. You see people crying out in the midst of injustice. You see people giving thanks to God or adoring God for who he is or thanking him for his deliverance. You see people in in great dire circumstances and looking around at the world saying, how long, O Lord, before you intercede in the middle of this as they are struggling with seeing evil going on all around him. And so we see this book is is probably one of the most... uh, not just interactive, but personally speaking to us and for us books. As it's been said, there are more tears cried on the pages of the Psalms than any other book in the entirety of the Scripture. People have cried out over generations. People have memorized these books, or, uh, the book of Psalms, over and over again. Now, the authors of the the book of Psalms, predominantly is mostly King David through various moments of his life, though a few worship leaders in Israel's history are also writers. Um, There's some of the prophets. uh, It has a variety of different authors. But all of these books together, again, speak for us. Now, today we're going to look at Psalm 46. Now, this psalmist or writer would often put notes because sometimes, again, these were songs for the choir leader, like sing it slowly, or you'll see the term selah. Some people wonder if that means interlude or if it means forever. Some believe it's a, a musical notation that you should just stop singing right now to think about what it is that has just been said. Whatever the case may be, the idea is to really, it is to draw attention to what was just spoken. Now, no one knows the exact circumstance of this song. We know it was written by uh, the sons of Korah, which were these very talented worship leaders early within Israel's history. Now, no one knows exactly the circumstances surrounding it, but it um, it could be surmised that whatever the situation was, it was one of extreme adversity, and it's relevant to anyone from any time who is facing an unbelievable trial. Actually, John Calvin, one of the greatest Bible expositors in church history, surmised the circumstances of this psalm as the time when King Hezekiah of Judah was surrounded by the army of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Forty-six towns and villages in Judah had been sacked. Over 200,000 residents had been taken captive, along with much spoil. And at least 185,000 troops surrounded Jerusalem, and it looked only like a matter of time before the city fell. But proud Sennacherib did not reckon with the fact that Hezekiah's God is the living God who will not be mocked. Hezekiah prayed, God spoke, and in one night the angel of the Lord defeated Sennacherib by killing 185,000 of his soldiers. Now, whether out of that situation or some other, Psalm 46 was written out of extreme adversity. And as I said before, it's relevant to anyone from any time who is facing an unbelievable trial. So now we've given a little bit of background to this psalm. Let's start off in verse 1. 
God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, I like how the New Living Translation puts it. God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. God wants us to know that he is there for us. You see, when we know him, he gives us the surety of his protection. That's the first point that you can write down within your notes. He gives the surety of his protection that he will be there for us. God will be there to protect us. There are certain times when we need that feeling of safety, of security. I remember as a child, my father had died. And uh, every time that my mother would walk out the door in the next few years, I was terrified she wasn't coming back. I just thought she, 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 you know, she could die too. And I, I wondered that, and I felt this anxiety within me. But when she was there, I felt safe. I knew that she was there, that she cared for me, and that I was, there was peace. This is the idea is that God is there. God is our refuge. God is our strength. That he's not leaving us. That he is there for us. He is our ultimate protection. Now, when we say that God is our refuge, this word for refuge is used to express finding safety in a time of danger. In the Old Testament, right before the Israelites entered into the promised land, God laid out a series of laws and protections. Matter of fact, he designated six cities to be called cities of refuge. And these cities were, were people who accidentally killed someone. Let's say that you were working in the field with a pickaxe and the top flew off and it killed somebody. And you would be called a manslayer. Now, they needed to determine whether you were innocent or guilty, but people often weren't patient. Um, if you've ever been around a mob mentality or someone wanting vengeance, they hear someone dies, rumors get out of place really quick. So they have to find out what is right and what is true. So God said that there are these six cities of refuge that if anyone killed someone accidentally, could flee to and have protection until a time of trial where they could determine the evidence to see what was right and what happened if anything had been wrong, if, they were, if it was intentional or unintentional. Because if the, what's called the avenger of blood, it was a near relative of someone who had been killed, if the avenger of blood heard that this person had died, they could go out and kill that person and there wouldn't be any penalty for it. Because it was an eye and eye, a tooth for a tooth, life for a life. That's how it was oftentimes within ancient Jewish uh, history. So we see then that there's a city of refuge, and David is, is using that, uh, or the sons of Korah are using that mentality to say, you, God is that place that you can flee and find safety. He will be there when you need safety. Now there are some of you right now are going through incredible circumstances, and you're wondering where you can find peace. And you're going everywhere else but God. You're looking at your friends, you're going online, you're, you're talking to family, you're talking to everybody else, but you're refusing to talk to God. And he's the only one that can give you safety. He's the only one that truly can be there for you, and we need that safety. I'm reminded, I, I can't believe how often we go to everybody else but God. And I came upon two Psalms uh, this past week that really reminded me of this. And it's in Psalm 108, verse 12, and Psalm 60, verse 11. And it says this, Oh, please help us against our enemies, for all human help is useless. 
It's useless, ultimately, because it's, it's God that has to work on our behalf. That doesn't mean we don't seek counsel from people. But it's, it's where is our ultimate hope? We are great at giving verbal affirmation that God is there and that we believe in God. And then we turn and do whatever we want because we don't believe really God's there for us. Because we don't have faith. Our faith is so small. I'm amazed at that. I'm amazed at how our world is today. When I look at all the different opportunities that we have, all of the different tools, I was speaking to someone uh, this past week about this is one of the most exciting times to be alive, to be a Christian. Because we're seeing lands that have been closed to the gospel for generations opening up. We have tools to share the gospel all over the world. And we have all of these opportunities. But you know what we don't have is power. Because we, we, don't, we don't live holy lives. We don't know what prayer is anymore. If it's not pragmatic and help me in my daily life right out the door, then I don't need it. And that's the saints of old. Just a few generations ago would have found that deplorable. I'm amazed at how much has transitioned in one generation. When I, became a, when I was a new pastor, we had a woman. Uh, her name was Sophie Peterson. Sophie Peterson, sweet lady, in her 90s. Um, and uh, when she died people in the church said, we feel that she is dead. Because she'd been praying. One young man said, I'd had, I'd had cancer as a boy. She started praying for me as a boy. And she'd been praying for me for over 40 years. She was up praying every morning. She was relying on God. What, what we do, we don't pray anymore. We just go to our phone and go, well, might as well just check on what's going on in the news or online. Or, you know, we're, this is the most depressed generation in history. Did you know that? Our technology that's supposed to help us has done a lot to hinder us, too. And we have to go back. We, we, these things can't substitute for the very power of God and relying on God. And that's why God says and speaks to us, I am your refuge, for God is our refuge. He is our safety, but he is also our strength. Our strength. See, he's there when we need safety, but we see that our God is a refuge and strength. Now, notice this. He doesn't say that God gives us strength. That's different. He says that God is our strength. Now, some would undoubtedly think of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. When you are weary, uh, he will cause them to mount up on wings like eagles. Right? Some of us have heard that passage. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. See, that's your strength, though. Here it's different. It's saying that God himself is our strength. Our strength is limited. I like how Pastor Rick Warren once put it. He says, your strength is limited. God's strength is unlimited. Your strength is infinite. God's strength, your, excuse me, your strength is finite. God's strength is infinite. Your strength is exhaustible. That's why you get exhausted. But God's strength is inexhaustible. God never runs out of energy. God never gets tired. He goes on. One of the most famous Christians of the 19th century was a guy named Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary to China, and he was a spiritual giant and a brilliant man. In his old age, he lost his health and became very weak. He wrote a letter to a friend that said this, I'm so weak that I can no longer work. I am so weak that I can no longer study. I am so weak that I can no longer read my Bible. I cannot even pray. I can only lie still in the arms of God like a little child and trust. Sometimes in your life, you're going to be so weak you can't even pray. So weak you can't read the Bible or go to a Bible study. You can't work. You can't do anything. What do you do in those moments? 
you rest in the strength of the Lord, in his arms like a little child, and you trust. Weakness actually can be a good thing in your life if it causes you to depend on God. So says Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Paul writes, three different times I begged the Lord to take it away, his thorn in his flesh. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Warren ends and he says, that's the paradox of depending on God. The more you're weak, the more you depend on God. And the more you depend on God, the stronger we get. Because it's not our strength. It's God's strength. He's our strength, but it's the next part that means so much to me. He is a very present help in trouble. Always ready to help in times of trouble. In other words, he offers to help himself. He is offering to give you support. Support. He himself will be ready to help you. He will be there when we need him most. What are you going through right now that you need God's help? What is your trouble? Is it in your marriage? Maybe your spouse cheated on you. Maybe, you're, maybe he or she are out the door and they say it's over. Maybe they're handing the divorce papers in. Or maybe your son has come home stoned or completely drunk. You don't know where they've been or who they've been with. But God is there for you. We have to get back to understand that, to have a pure faith. Where is our faith? Where is it? It's in so many different things, but all of those things are going to pass away. Just as I was reading today in my quiet time with God, it's saying that the wicked are like the thorns in a fire, like kindling. They just burn up, crackle for a bit, and then are gone. This world will pass away. Everything that we adhere to now and find so much enjoyment in will be forgotten in a moment. Where do we go for support? What is the trouble that you are facing? Run to God for support. Call on Him. Man's help is useless, ultimately. We have to have a radical trust in Him who made us. Where is our faith? May God forgive us for relying on the strength of man. We have forgotten that ours is a spiritual endeavor, and we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, powers, and forces in the heavenly realm. He is our very present help in time of trouble. He is God, and he's offering to help. Are we trusting in him? See, that's what's going on in this passage. This this psalmist is making a declaration that God will be there for them. And not just that, they won't fear anymore. See, if God is with us, who could be against us? Even though the earth would give way, the mountains would be cast down, the waters are foaming, and the mountains who are considered immovable are moving. See, that's what we see within our passage. Look back within it. He says in verse 2, though we, though we will not, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains, which are immovable, majestic, considered many different sects and parts of the ancient world where the gods dwelt. But he's saying here, what we understood, they even could be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. And to a Jewish reader, the waters meant chaos. It meant complete calamity. They couldn't understand it because they couldn't probe its depths. And there was a great fear toward it. 
And so he's saying here that though everything that you know and understand changes and have, there's calamity going on all around you, we will not fear because that's not where our hope is. That's not where we go for support. The psalmist then transitions in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Now, this entire section is summing up one thing. God giving the surety of his presence. Of his presence. He is contrasting. The first, two, the first verse is a declaration that he is our, our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. But then he says, though, that's why we don't need to fear because of everything that would go on around us. God is our refuge. And then he talks about how God is our refuge. He says, starts off in verse 4, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The city of God is Jerusalem. But this is kind of a strange picture because he's saying that there is a river. Jerusalem has no rivers. There is no river within Jerusalem. But he's saying here that there is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God. Now, it doesn't have a stream in it, but it's apocalyptic or end-time language. It's pointing to something else. See, later down the line, the prophet Ezekiel tells of a time when water will flow from the Jewish temple beginning as a trickle. As a matter of fact, he begins to measure it as it's filling this kind of this bed, and he's measuring it, and it's getting deeper, deeper, and deeper, and he's wading through it, and then becomes this amazing river that he cannot cross and he has to sit upon the the edge just to to watch this huge river he's on the river bank and his guide begins to explain to him that this river has life-giving properties not just for morality but for the natural world as well and specifically to the parts of the world that have the least ability to sustain life and this will be the time that Jesus will be reigning upon the earth, and because of his reign, life will extend to the rest of the world. And this will be after the time that he has judged humanity. Zechariah talks about this river in Zechariah 14.8, giving us a preview of it. But the greatest picture of it comes in Revelation 22, 1-2, near the climax of John's vision of this new heaven and a new earth. And he's saying that God himself will be in it. And his presence will be manifest, not just to them in that moment in that city, but it will spread to the entire world. And it will be revealed. He will be revealed for all who he really is. But he's saying here, and it's used for us to know that his presence will be there for us in our lives, even when calamities around us are going on. So the psalmist is comparing the world that's in chaos with the security of God's presence. When God is there, there is joy. And where there is joy, there is peace. And which is why we read that the city shall not be moved. Everything else, the earth is giving way, the mountains are going into the sea, the waters are foaming, but not Jerusalem. It won't be moved. Those who trust in God will be immovable. See, that's where the gospel has to find its root, by the way. I, get, I, I don't know about you, but I look around at times, and I, 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 I know the, the, the scriptures, I know the, the words, but where I see the gospel alive is in people who are living their lives in obedience to Christ. 
which is also why I get heartbroken when I see brothers and sisters turning away from God because I'm like, the gospel really doesn't live in them. And I thought it did, but it doesn't. Because if it did, they would show it by their lives, through their sufferings. They would remain steadfast. See, it's through the trials that we find out who we really are. And here, this, all the trials are coming, but their faith is, is focused on God. They're trusting in God whose presence is there in a city that is completely immovable. They know that even in the midst of all this calamity, God's presence is there with them. And this, by the way, we have a picture of this in the Old Testament in, uh, with the plagues upon the nation of Egypt. I mean, yeah, on the nation of Egypt. Where God takes time to differentiate between the Egyptians, who was the world power at the time, and the Israelites. And time and time again, we see a plague go upon them, but it says in the land of Goshen, that didn't happen to them. Hail crushed every part of the Egyptians' cattle and their plants, but no hail fell on the land of Goshen. Their swarms of flies came upon all of the Egyptians, but no fly touched the Israelites. Darkness came all over Egypt in midday, that it was a darkness that could be felt. But there in Goshen, it was bright as day, because God was showing his presence with his people. And when you are following God and you're trusting in God, even if you'd been in sin and you turn back with a genuineness in your heart and an authenticity that God will give you his presence. God will give you his presence. He will be there for you. And then with his presence comes peace. Almost all of us want and need peace. This peace is not a peace that the world gives. See, the world will give you peace, but it's a temporary peace. It's an uneasy ceasefire, basically, and it has to be on their terms. But God gives peace that transcends all worldly peace. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 14, verse 26. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That there is a peace that only God alone can give. It's a peace that cannot be shaken. And if you need that peace, then you need to run to God to get it. Many of us do not have peace because we haven't been running to God. We've been running to the world for peace, whether it's through alcohol, drugs, entertainment, porn, gaming, hobbies, shopping, exercise, dieting, etc. Only God can give true and lasting peace. Now notice verse 5. God will help her when morning dawns. God will help her when morning dawns. Now what does that mean? What does it mean that God will help when morning dawns? If we were to look back within Jewish history, we see that there's this time where darkness is, is symbolized or it's shown within battle, and it's when the light comes that their help comes. And it's saying that just at the last moment when we think that uh, there is no hope, God shows up. And what he means there is that God will give us his presence, he will give us his peace, and he will do it at the proper time. That he will do it in his time and in his way. The problem that we have is we don't trust God's timing. We don't trust his timing. We see something happening and we're, we'll give God, you know, like the first half of our, the waiting period. And after that, we try to figure it out ourselves. But God wants us to wait on him, whether it's for finding a spouse whether it's for uh, a job, whether it's for a certain financial decision, it's on God's timing. The problem is, is we don't want to wait. We see what everybody else does around us, and we feel that God's not there for us. We have to take matters into our own hands, and we have to wait for God. 
Because he might be doing something that we didn't expect that's against those desires that we have. And he wants to reveal those desires as sinful. Or he's going to show up and he's going to validate the things that we're hoping for at the proper time. God will help in his own way and in his own time. And we'll know it when he shows up. And when he does, we can be sure that he will show his power. He will show his power. Look at verse 6. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. The nations rage, which is the author's way of saying that the world tries to fight against us, but their kingdoms are faltering and are going to fail. God only needs speak, and the earth melts. He is so powerful. Think about it during Jesus' life. We read about this in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus is on the, on the boat sleeping on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples when a great storm rose up. The waves are so high that they're lapping into the boat. Jesus has been exhausted from a, gr- a long day, so he's not feeling any of the, the waves that are coming in. He's sleeping. And the disciples are so afraid that they woke him and they said, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Jesus looked up, rebuked them for their lack of faith. And notice, then it says in the text, then he stood up. So apparently, he's laying down. They wake him up. He's like, you have no, where's your faith? Then it says he stood up. He goes and he rebukes the wind. He rebukes the storm. And he, and he says, peace. And the, the disciples cry out. They marveled. And said, what sort of man is this that even winds and seas obey him? What sort of man is this? God will speak peace into your life when you come to him, when you run to him, when you call on him. Remember, he's with you, but he might be asleep in your boat. He will calm the storm or he will calm this child, but he will show his power. Now let's look at the third part of the passage. In Psalm 46, verse 8, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. The psalmist invites us to ponder God's work, to think about God's work. Think about all that God has done throughout history. Just to think about his handiwork and how he has brought so many different things to pass. Yesterday, I had the opportunity of going to the Morton Arboretum. I'd never been there before. Kind of a cool place. And got to walk around and had a, a friend of mine um, who uh, is very familiar. He goes there a lot, spends time. And, and he, was taking, he took us around. And I went to this one part where I saw these gigantic oak trees. I couldn't believe how big these oak trees were and, and just how the branches went out in so many different places and so many different leaves. And I couldn't even begin to think about climbing that kind of tree and how, how large that it is and just seeing rows and rows of them and how far they went back. And I, I just marveled at God. He created his own cathedral. And how gorgeous and how powerful God is. Sometimes we, have, we, we miss these things. We can't begin to ponder how great he is. We can't think about it because we're too busy. We are so busy. As I was talking to our, our men's group yesterday and all the men were going around and everything that each one of us was dealing with is a lack of time. Time. We've forgotten how to pause and think. Ponder God's work. Think about all that God has done throughout history. Remember, that's a spiritual discipline is to remember who God is and what he has done. And there are three things, though, I want us to see in verse 8 
said he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. So it's not just in verse 9, but in verse 10 and in verse 11. But first of all, we see here, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. These are like the tanks of the ancient world. He's saying that these men will try to thwart God's plan. God's plans aren't going to be stopped. Psalm 2 says that God who sits, says, why, does the heavens, or why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? He who sits in heaven laughs. God laughs. God's plans can't be stopped. No matter what's going on in our world, no matter what we see happen politically, no matter what evil we see trumpeted or triumphed or what people fall into it or turn around, no matter what people turn against Christ, that does not change God's plans. His plans cannot be stopped. Cannot be stopped. He will be exalted among all the nations. He will be exalted over all the earth. Look at verse 10. This is one of my favorite verses. Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still. When's the last time that you were still? We have got addicted to entertainment and high emotional experiences that we think if we don't have them, that we're not entertained, that we don't get something out of it, that God didn't work. That's not true. Sometimes we have to learn to be quiet, to be still to hear God's voice. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He will be praised by all. He will be praised by all. When we consider the end of time, that all evil will be judged, and that every single person, willingly or unwillingly, will bow the knee to God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11 says it this way. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will be praised forevermore. There will be no more fighting, no more rebellion, no more sin. God will reveal his rule in all of its glory, and all of creation will finally acknowledge him as God. You know that it says in Romans that creation, the entirety of creation groans until the sons of God are revealed. So God is revealed in all of his glory and everything that he has done will be seen. The creation groans and waits for that time. Now, my last point. I want to look at verse 7. If you look at verse 7, you can actually see that it's repeated in verse 11. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Now, the Lord of hosts is a term referring to God in his heavenly courtroom. The angels that are surrounding him, he's called the Lord of hosts. Sometimes Lord Sabaoh is a term that's often used. And it's saying here, it's the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob. They're identifying themselves with the God of Jacob. This is the God of Jacob. He's saying that, and why did the authors felt need to write that the Lord of hosts is with us? And the God of Jacob is our fortress. Why did he need to say that? Because everything was still going on around him in the calamity. And what he was saying is he was actually, or what he was doing was he was preaching it to himself to remind himself whose he is. See, we have forgotten whose we are. This is not just a generic God. We have this generic God here in America. This moral therapeutic deity who allows everyone to go to heaven, who is there for all of your problems and all your struggles, but he demands no holiness. He's not a God of wrath. He's completely forgiving. He doesn't punish sin. That is not the God of the Scriptures. The God of the Scriptures is totally different. Yes, he's benevolent. Yes, he's good. Yes, he forgives sin. But he also must punish sin, which is why he sent his son to die for us. It's not this just generic Christian God. It's, a, it's one where they're saying, this is who we identify with, and we have to preach this to ourselves. See, one of the greatest issues of our day is the subject of identity. Is the subject of identity. Especially here in the United States of America. Not so much in other countries, but here in the United States of America. Just like yesterday, I was at the Morton Arboretum, and uh, there was uh, a lot of people were getting their pictures taken. And then I see these two girls walk in with a man who's about six foot two, and he's wearing a dress. Just walking through everything else, and everybody's going on like it's fine and it's okay. Some people didn't even notice. But you see a guy that's that large trying to wear high heels, you notice. But this is where our world is. And it's not just tolerance, by the way. This is outright, complete acceptance. And matter of fact, we have to understand this, that if you identify with God, then you're going to put yourself at odds with other people. But some Christians don't want to do that. They want to call themselves progressive Christians and say it's not that big of a deal. It's a huge deal of where we're at within our world today. And then if you choose one thing and you say this is okay, even though God says it's not, then you're going to have a massive problem. And we all have it. I mean, I'm not just that. There's so many different struggles and things that I could put up. I'm just using that one as the most fresh example that I have. And yes, people struggle with different sins, but we all have issues of identity in one way, shape, or another. Where we fit in, where we go. What am I going to do? Especially, we see it in younger people, but we see it as adults. Do I fit in with this group? Do I see people that look like me? Uh, do I do this? Do I do that? Do I? And we constantly are trying to define ourselves and describe ourselves. That's why children come up and they want to know their history. They want to know their background. You see people doing all this research. Where did I come from? What is my background? Where is it? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? And as, for Christians, that becomes the dominant identity over everything else that we experience. And when he says, the God of Jacob, the Lord of hosts is with us. He is with us. And it's the God of Jacob, not just this generic God, but the God who revealed himself to Jacob, who was given a promise, 
that began with Abraham and carried on through Isaac and then to Jacob and then to the 12 tribes of Israel and specifically Judah and went down into the time of David. Then it was shown in the person of Jesus Christ that he was the descendant of all of these. And we have to preach this truth to ourselves that we worship a Messiah who came from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Judah, and then David, who would come and take our place and suffer God's wrath for us. It's this divine son who would die our death and then rise again so that we might declare it righteous in God, and that changes our identity. See, when we come to know Jesus, everything about who we are changes. That's why in 2 Corinthians it says that we become a new creation. My question is, is are we living as new creations? Do we understand how new we really are and how different we are? I don't think we do. I think we let everything else define who we are, and we don't let God define who we are. In our culture, we give what I call the power of definition to everybody else but God. Have you ever had someone come to you and say that you're dumb or stupid or uh, you can't do this or can't do that, and that person had no bearing on any other part of your life and yet you were down? I was speaking to my wife about this. She was down because a relative had said something to her and, and it really brought her down and depressed. And I said, why do you give her the power of definition in your life? Don't give her that power of definition to determine what's right and what's wrong for you. That you're a child of God, that you're different. You know your motives, you know your heart. But don't give them that power of definition. And some of us have given that power of definition to everyone else but God. To declare our identity. To declare what sin is. And it changes us. And it has to be for that way for each one of us. That's the radical nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the radical nature of what the cross means. Is it changes our identity. And when I see people say, oh, they can't help it, they can't help this, or they can't help that, and, and you see just the evil that's going on that's being excused or psychologized or whatever term you want to use for it, being rationalized away, and said so that, that people and removes personal responsibility for actions, that's where the cross goes back to regulate it and, and calls each one of us to repentance, not to stay in our sin or to have Jesus and our sin. No. We have to understand that we were crucified with Christ, and it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives within us. And we have to learn to die to those sinful nature, that sinful desires that we have. But we don't do that any longer. We don't do it as a church. We don't do it as a culture. I mean, and, and many of us are still looking at the culture to be the church. The culture is not the church. The church is the church. The church is to embody the very gospel and the message of Jesus Christ, to be Jesus to the world. And we have to preach this to ourselves. We have to preach to ourselves who we are, that we are followers of Jesus, that we've been crucified with Christ, that we are a new creation. We have to continually tell us this, tell ourselves this. I, was, uh, I shared with you sometime before, I was talking with uh, T.V. Thomas. You've heard me mention his name. Um, a man who's become kind of a mentor to me. And he's an Indian-born Malaysian, or a Malaysian-born Indian. Malaysian-born Indian. I never get that straight. 
And he, t- he's, he shared the gospel in 170 different nations. He travels around encouraging all these pastors and evangelists. And I said, what do you do after someone comes to know Jesus? He goes, I have, them, I have this list of who you are in Christ, and I have them take it out, and I have it pasted in their Bible, and I tell them they need to say that every morning, repeat that, and preach to their own soul. We have to remind ourselves who we are in Jesus, that many of us have lost that fact. And we don't call on God, and we don't understand what it means to rely on Him. And so we run to everything else but God. See, when we know Him, when we have trusted in Him and what He has done on the cross for us, we are transformed. And we have the promise of His protection and His presence whenever we need Him. But we have to know Him first. The question is, is do you know Him? You can't know about Him, you have to know Him. And that only comes by admitting that you are a sinner and turning from your sin, believing that Jesus Christ died for you, and confessing that he is Lord and he will save and transform us to live for him. Let's pray. I'm reminded of the question that you asked your prophet Ezekiel. Son of man, can these bones live? And he responded with, surely, oh God, you know. And then you told him to prophesy to the bones. And as he prophesied, the bones began to rattle. They came together. Muscle, organ, skin. And it wasn't until you gave the breath of life did they come back. But Lord, we know that you, preaching your word gives life convicts us and it challenges us. Lord, you know the depth of our being. You know our hearts. And Lord, we know that you are our refuge and ever-present help in time of trouble. And that there are many today that are here that are struggling and wondering where there is hope. And that hope is in you. Help us to radically reorient our focus to you. Challenge us to remove the idols that we have trusted in. Either our own intellect, our abilities, the systems around us, relying on other people to solve all of our issues. And yet we refuse to take it to you, to talk to you, to let you deal with us. We refuse to even listen. Lord, which is why you said, be still and know that I am God. Lord, we're great at talking. We're terrible at listening. Help us to listen, to hear what it is that you have for us, to trust in you, to know that you are God and that your purposes will be accomplished. And Lord, I know that there are all kinds of struggles and sins and all kinds of confusion in our identity, and we see it in in ourselves. We see it in the world around us. And Lord, we know that such things are bound to happen, but we ask that you use your word to remove any fog of confusion in our culture, that that comes at us day in and day out. Help us to see who we are in you and to put to death our sinful nature, whether it's, uh, I pray for that young man that I saw yesterday that he might truly know and see who you are. But uh, Lord, I pray that for every person that was there, that his sin might have been outward, but others are inward. And Lord, may we not just judge on the outward appearances, but we look at, may we just trust in you, share the truth of your word, knowing that you are the one who looks at the heart. And Lord, we know how quickly our hearts can become corrupt. We ask that you do forgive us of our sins, for they are great. And Lord, for whatever struggle we're going through now, Lord, may we call on you. 
to know that you're always ready to help, that you're there for us, and that you will make a way where there is no other way. May we put our trust and our hope in you and in you alone. We ask you to be with us, bless us, grow us, and use us. In Jesus' name, amen.